Hi, my name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, as we celebrate National Poetry Month, I'm thrilled to welcome a man who's an institution in his own right, poet and publisher Hakim Madabuti. A leading member of the National Black Arts Movement of the 1960s and 70s, Madabuti has published more than 30 books of poetry, nonfiction, and critical essays. His early work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Congress of Racial Equality, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference inform his activist poetics. His texts include Don't Cry, Scream, Groundwork, and Black Men, Obsolete, Single, and Dangerous. I began by asking him if he remembered how old he was when he wrote his first poem. Let's listen in to his response. Well, I was in uh, high school, and <laughs> I was trying to, to write both lyrics for music and poetry. And so I forget I was writing these poems, and you know, the brother you know, looking on my back saying, what are you doing, man? Now, at that time, poets were considered you know, feminine and um, and so I said, what are you doing, Don? What are you, what are you writing? I said, I'm writing lyrics for the Supremes. <laughs> but I was actually trying to write poetry. So I was in high school. And then it really began to develop once I got into the military. And I went in the military in 1960. Yeah. So once you got into the military, you were reading a book a day, yes? Pretty much so, yeah. See, I had learned to read well Actually, I took the same reading course as John uh, Kennedy. It was called the Evelyn Wood reading course at that time. It was not necessarily the best way to read, to learn how to read, but it did give me some pointers in terms of reading fast and, 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 and maintaining you know, memory and so forth. Um, I used to be able to just look at a paragraph and just take in a paragraph, boom, just like that. It worked well for non-serious literature. Once you start getting to the serious, I mean, you can't read Toni Morrison like that. You can't read Grimm books like that. You can't read poetry like that. But my reading has always been a, kind of eclectic where I would read not only heavily in African-American, Black, and African literature, I read heavily in other literatures also, you know, and um, whatever was popular at the time. You know. But what has helped me as much as my reading was travel. Hmm. I'm probably, probably out of the, all the poets that come out of my generation, I think the only other poets who have traveled as much as I have, I, I, my generation has probably been Sonia and Midi Baraka. Um, but I think I went to Africa more than both of them combined. You know, I've been to Africa about 15 times. And, um, um, and I didn't have to pay for it myself. I was being brought to Africa. I guess in the middle, the middle seventies, I went to a conference in Senegal. Okay, and at the same conference was Harold Cruz, mm. who had published a very popular Christ of the Negro Intellectual. Okay, and there were others, but Harold and I we communicated because I read, read the book and 
read his essays in Negro Digest Black World. And um, while we were there, now by the time I had published about four or five books, and while we were there, the president of the Senate, the, the Honorable Leopold Senghor, the poet, asked the African-Americans to come down to, to the palace, okay? And we went, and uh, and I could see his A whispering in his ear. And when we got up to the top, the president said, Monsieur Don Lee? I said, you know, yes, sir. And he told his aide to help with Harold Cruz because he wasn't feeling well. And um, the president asked me to come into the library. So I went into the library of this great writer, Leopold Senghor, and he went directly to his bookcase and pulled out two of my books. Oh my God, what an honor. Uh, Don't Cry, Scream, and We Walked Away of the New World, which came out in seventy, and asked me to sign the books. Uh, it was a real honor. And then he's, and I said, you know, you know President Senghor, you know, I teach, teach you in, in my classes. And he smiled and he spoke English fortunately, but uh, I, I couldn't speak French at all. Yeah, that was the first president I met. It reminds me of something you told me, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago um, that I've never forgotten. You said that when you walk into anybody's home, you can tell who they are within the first few minutes of walking in. And you said, do you have a bookshelf at all? And if so, what's on it? You know, um, and it's, it's influenced not only how I've created my own spaces, but also my, my thought process when I go into other people's homes. So when you, Mm. um, when you go into Leopold Sedar Senghor's library, what does that tell you about who he is? I did not feel any way other than just being honored to be in the presence of Leopold Senghor. I did not feel diminished or that in awe of him or nothing like that. But I said, okay, this is a great writer, a major writer, and I learned from him. And I felt honored that he even knew my damn, you know, knew my name, right? Let alone have a couple of my books. But that has happened a couple of times. Um, even more so, see, if you look at Yellow Black, in Yellow Black, I have in yellow black a picture of W.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson. And under the picture, I write, I adopted Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois as my grandfathers. Because I did not have grandfathers, I didn't have grandmothers, right? And so we got to Ghana, this is another trip. And I go to the Du Bois house. And in the divorced house, there's a picture on the wall with others of Donnell Lee. <laughs> Anyhow, now see, I don't travel with a camera. I just, I don't want to be invasive with people. I don't take pictures and stuff like that. I never travel with a camera. But my picture was on the wall uh, of, of the of the divorce house in uh, in Ghana, Accra, Ghana. Amazing. So, it's, it's, so the travel has really been very important. I, I met Nina Simone and Archie Shep. And Emory, who was the artist for the Black Panther paper, um, and others, I'm just trying to think of the other names now, in Algiers in 1969 in the first Pan-African Festival. Okay. And so I've had this benefit of being in the presence of great people by being a poet. Okay. Um, 
And as a result of that, it has helped aided me in order to one to stay on the on the on the narrow path of not being too important because I really met important people. <laughs> so you can't, you know, it's a damn poet, man. You know, so even in in Nigeria, I read I read with Phelan. Okay, the the art. I mean, the national saxophone player artist yeah. of uh, Nigeria. This was at Festac. Went to his compound and. and you know, I was still done, but he, I knew I was trying to change my name to Haki. I said, come on up here, man. Let's read some. I'm, I'm going to play and you read some poetry. Amazing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, it's, been a, it's been a long, fruitful life. I mean, so I don't want to picture that it has not been painful, it has not been difficult, it has not been challenging, because it has been. I've never taken a salary from anything that we created. I never taken a salary from Third World Press, Third World Press Foundation, or from our schools. That's my life, even for the most part. That's our gift, and we're service orientated. Okay, and as a result of building these institutions, now at the age of seventy-eight, I'm turning it over to other younger people. Uh, the incoming uh, president is is a doctor, uh, Romy R O M I. Crawford, who's on the faculty of the Art Institute. I mean, she's an expert on the Black Arts Movement. The incoming um, executive editor uh, of Third World Press, Third World Press Foundation, is a Dr. Lasana Kazimdi. And then the incoming publisher Third World Press, Third World Press Foundation is uh, Dr. Michael Samanga. And these three people will shepherd us in the next 50 years. This is the 54th year. So the next year will be 55. And at that point, we'll do a national whatever. It passes. It's COVID-19. And then I'm just going to disappear into the world. You ain't going nowhere. Stop that. <laughs> I mean... yeah, right. I mean, one of the things that I think about when I look at your legacy thus far, which is obviously continuing to to grow and, and benefit all of us, is that in addition to these 30 books, you've really carved out a space, 30 plus books, you've really carved out a space as, a, as an institution builder. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about what that's meant for you. And I'm just looking at the list. Third World Press in 1967, the Third World Press Foundation in 2002, the Institute of Positive Education in 1969, the New Concept School in 1972. You co-founded the Betty Shabazz International Charter School in 1998, the Barbara Ann Sizemore Academy 2005, all in Chicago. I mean, Haki, mm -hmm. this is something you've devoted so many years to. What is it about institutions um, and, and founding and stewarding them that has been um, a driving force in your life? Because we don't have institutions at the serious level that any serious people would have institutions. And you look at, you know, you look at other cultures, or whether they're Irish, or Polish, or Italian, or Jewish, Anglo-Saxon, you look at those people and the institutions partially define them, okay? The major institution in the black community is the black church. And this is not to deny at any serious level the importance of the black church. No, of course not. But also the black church is a major business in the black community. Well, okay. so you got 95,000 
Negro, black, African-American churches. But as I speak to you this evening, you have over 2 million black men and women locked up in the nation's prisons. Hmm. Okay. Obviously because of the white supremacist culture that they, that we have been brought into and fighting every day. But my point is that those 95,000 black Negro African-American churches have not been able to function at a level to keep these 2 million or more black men and women out of these prisons. Okay. And so what I was concerned about, where are the institutions that are not quote unquote churches? And that's why we built at one level, these institutional structures. Now, and I knew that in order to have these structures stay alive and move, we had to own property. You, you, you can't, you see, we were renting back in the 60s and early 70s. And every time we would have meetings around struggle, around getting ready to do something in the streets, and anytime a brother or sisters spoke a curse word or a word out of order, the minister would get upset, and next week we couldn't meet there anymore. Hmm. So I said, I got this. I got this. In order to do what we need to do, we have to do move toward ownership. But we have to own ourselves first. And then you move that toward pooling our resources and buying property. That's what we did. We bought our first piece of property back in, I guess, the 80s. And then... Uh, we bought a farm. We bought a farm in upstate in, in South Haven, Michigan. Oh. Where we could take our babies out of the, take our children. We had these schools, take our children out of, out of the cities in the summer up to, to, to our farm. Then we ended up buying that, that half a block, which was basically a Catholic parish. And it's a whole story behind that. You heard the name Winton Gregory, who just made a cardinal. Mm-hmm. Okay. First black cardinal in the United States. When a, we were trying to buy this property. I went to the Archdiocese of Chicago. And after the white man continuously messed up my name, he said, no, the property is not. Not know the guy's lying because nobody's in the property, except a few people that may come into the, to the, to, to, to the rectory doing whatever they do. But there was no serious activity there, especially in the schools. Schools completely cold down. And the game bangers basically were breaking out the windows in the school. So after this guy said no, I came back to the South Side of Chicago and called uh, some of my Catholic friends. I said, who makes the decision on the South Side of Chicago? And they said, Bishop Winton Gregory. Well, I said, where is he at located? And they said, South Holland, that's a, a suburb outside of Chicago. So I started calling Winton Gregory leaving Hakeem Anaguti, and he never would get back to me, but we, I said, call and leave Donnell Lee to see what happens. And he called back, his secretary called back and said, are you the poet, Donnell Lee? I said, yes, I am. And, because uh, I knew some other priests who knew him, and um, his secretary said, okay, uh, Bishop Gregory got 15 minutes about two weeks from now. I said, well, can I please get those 15 minutes? And I told Sophia, watch me now. Okay, <laughs> so I put you know put my tie on everything and went out to you know. fifteen minutes turned into two hours, and when I left, I had a letter to Cardinal Bernardine who was in Chicago, stating that we not only need to be on the list to buy the property, we need to be at the top of the list. Hmm. Okay, 
And so uh, that's how we, we got the property. We had, you know, we had to buy it. They didn't give it to us. And the key point here is that I would not give up. And the people that I worked with would not give up, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole lot of stories like that in terms of what we've been able to do. Let me jump in so, here because I want to I want to talk about this idea. Sorry, this the the idea of ownership um, that you spoke about in in terms of how and why you've built the institutions that you have. Uh-huh. I want to talk about how you explore that same idea in in your poetry and in your literature, and not just you as an individual, but I feel like that was kind of a a, a characterizing theme of the Black Arts Movement, of which you were a leading figure, right? Where you know, poets and and cultural workers and artists in general, like we're really exploring this idea of of ownership from everything, from what do we call ourselves in our individual names to what do we call ourselves as a as a race racial group, you know, uh, to to how are we how are we self defining, and what is it that we're creating? Would you agree with that? Right. And and how would you describe? Um, yes. Yeah, so there was always there was all this always this traveling along this self definition mm-hmm. road, and you know starting off at you know colored and coon and you know, negro and nigger and all this other stuff, uh, and we finally got to black and finally got to African and African American people of African ancestry. Okay, but that was a, that was what we had to travel through uh, through white supremacy, <clears throat> and one of the very effective. Uh, tactics of white supremacy is keep you ignorant. If you don't know who you are, anybody can name you. So we end up with names like Don L. Lee. Okay. And so we had to work our way through that. That was not taught to us in any university or college or high school. We had to find that through self-study and self-examination. We had to find that through really serious struggle. I mean, real serious struggle. I work with some of the great, great black people well, Martin Luther King. When King came to Chicago, I was in all the marches with Dr. King. Okay, he was a great man, no doubt about it. I didn't believe in uh, nonviolence, but I believed in him. Hmm. Okay, and so I would, when I joined him as a foot soldier, then Jesse Jackson as a foot soldier, I would you know deal with their rules and regulations as a foot soldier. Okay, but the point is that. That was a tactic, a larger part of the strategy. And so working with SCLC, working with SNCC, and working with CORE, these are three organizations I work with outside, outside of the Black Arts Movement. Um, but for us, for me, brick and mortar maintained a serious part of my consciousness because I saw what churches did. You see, I grew up in a Baptist church with my 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 grandfather from it was actually my father's father's mother's husband who was his stepfather so it was not my biological grandfather Mm -hmm. but he was a baptist preacher and so when my mother left and i had to stay with them for a few you know for six months or so i'm going to church four or five times it's like you know six you know a week and all this stuff and um but he had a storefront church, and then storefront church moves to another church. You buy from a you know a, a Jewish synagogue or from the Episcopalians. People running from the black community. You know? So I saw the importance of brick and mortar. But by that time, I had self-identified as a man of African ancestry, as a black man, African American, 
and had traveled to Africa, you know, had traveled to Africa and knew the importance of Africa in terms of our lives. And then we, when I was at Howard, I met Chancellor Williams. That's how we published The Destruction of Black Civilization, okay? Meeting Andrew Billingsley, who had written at that time, uh, Climbing Jacob's Ladder, major sociologist. Okay? Meeting Stephen Henderson, who was to eventually write the major book to, on the black uh, poets at that time, uh, Understanding New Black Poetry, okay? Stephen Henderson, Dr. Stephen Henderson. So I'm saying that I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded. I mean, uh, uh, also John Oliver Killens, who's a major f- uh, uh, fiction writer and an essayist. So I'm surrounded by people who produce and people who are serious about institutional development. Stick, Ron Benner Jr., Howard Dobson were all part of the creation of the Institute of the Black World, okay, down in, in, in Atlanta. So I'm, I'm interacting with these brothers, and for the most part, uh, and, and the brothers and sisters of SNCC, Judy Richardson, and Cortland Cox, and, you know, and, and Charlie Cobb. And while I was at Howard, they had built the, 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 the uh, bookstore there, Drum and Spear Bookstore, one of the first bookstores uh, in our culture, in, right, out, right about four or five blocks from Howard University. And... In my whole background, we, we, we own three bookstores, too, in Chicago at one time. You know, that's another old story. But ha- I'm, I'm always, I was always looking for, how can we take care of ourselves? Why do we have to go hand and, you know, crawling, begging these, 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 these people who essentially snatched us from a contract, anything? Yeah. And that was it. So it's, it's a whole lot, uh, Shani, in terms of our maturation and trying to stay independent as best we can in a, in a, in a, in a, in a country that essentially enslaved us in chattel slavery. And after we fought our way out of chattel slavery, we began, you know, the, 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 the mental enslavement, our psychological enslavement continued to today, to today. And so our role, my, my role, my wife's role, and the role of the brothers and sisters I've worked with all these years is how do we unshackle ourselves from this psychological enslavement? And in many cases, uh, physical enslavement, most certainly in terms of the industrial, you know, the prison complex. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and that will continue until I no longer can, you know, have a breath. That, and so for me, losing a na- kind of a national audience at one level, you, you lose when you go from Don L. Lee to Hakeem Adabuchi. Now, I don't think I got, I got meant some of it back when I wrote and published um, Black Men, Obsolete Single Dangers, which is, you know, over a million copies in print. But um, from that point on, it was always a struggle, you know, to trying to stay alive, right? Black men, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, but I buying that property and maintaining the property, and you come there, you cannot be nothing but impressed. We got one of the best art collections in the world in Third World Press. And I got that idea from Johnny's Johnson at Ebony and Jen Johnson Publishing Company. Who is in your art collection? Mm-hmm. Who is in oh, your art collection? Black artists, you know, uh, John Lockhart. You know, I can't remember all of them, but major, major, major right artists. Not only there, but also in our home. We got them here in our home too. Well, now that's one of the questions that I have because when I was first introduced to the National Black Arts Movement, um, it was at Spelman. It was this transformative. Uh, moment mm. of learning for me, right? Because 
there was this, the convergence of all of these different um, genres and movements, you know, artistic genres and movements coming together in service mm -hmm. of this exploration of, of identity and community. Um, and, and having that, what you all modeled for us, it was just, I can't, I can't, I don't, I, I lack words when I try to talk about the impact that that had on me. But I wonder, in the moment of creation, in the moment of collaborating with these movements and of collecting these visual artists and of writing your own poetry and uh, of, of being in a community of poets, did you know what you all were doing? Did it feel like you were participating in this revolutionary renaissance moment? What what was it like to oh, be yeah. there? Yeah, in many ways it did, yeah. We just, we weren't taking any prisoners. Most of us were students of history and students of politics, and we were actively involved in the struggle. In fact, we were, I was involved with our Institute of Positive Education. We were involved in the 1972 uh, 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 historic national convention, black political convention in Gary, Gary Indiana, Indiana in 1972. Yeah. We were there. Yeah. Okay, we were there. Um, <clears throat> um, I've read that 100% of your books have been published by black publishers. Oh yeah, 100%. I would, now, poems, I allow poems to be published in the anthologies by whites and others, okay? And my poems have been in the, published in over, you know, over 100 anthologies, but I would not allow any of my books to be published by white publishers. Why is that a core value for you? Well, that's what Gwendolyn Brooks did when she left Harper and Rowe. She, uh, she only published with black publishers, primarily because we needed the money to build the black publishing companies. I mean, Delhi Randall, when Don't Cry Scream sold so well, I didn't even take a check from Delhi Randall for the book. I told him to just put the money back into the press, okay? And I've never taken a royalty check from um, Third World Press. I just put the money back into the press, as well as many of the writers that we published. Gwendolyn Brooks didn't take any money from us. Uh, Sonia Sanchez hasn't taken any money. Amelia Baraka hasn't taken any money, all right? So a lot of the major writers uh, uh, that we've published over the years basically put their money back into their world press, our broadside press. In 2006, you said that if any artist or any person actually understands the condition of the black world, it will be a dereliction of duty to not write about that world and expose the injustices that exist in it. Does that still resonate for you? What is the role? I agree. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. The role of the black artist is to uh, tell the truth. It's important, for, at least for me, <clears throat> I don't try to tell black writers or brown writers or writers of other cultures what to write. But for me, and those of us coming out of the black arts movement, we, we stay close to the vest and make sure that our, our story is told accurately, <clears throat> with passion and all of those. Okay? Sonia Sanchez, all of them, you know. New what? writer, I mean, relatively, Jessica Caremore, you can go down the line. That's one of the things that this show deals with is this idea of, of lineage, not just in terms of our blood families, but also in terms of cultural genealogies, <coughs> um, which mm -hmm. I know is something that's so important to you um, because you're always referring back to the people that you've learned from and you're also always giving you know, forward to those of us lucky enough to, to know you. Um, 
I want to know because it's a, it's been very important to you this concept of, of cultural families. You know, um, having Gwendolyn Books as your cultural mother, having cultural children. What does that mean to you? Well, even I think what y'all are trying to do at one level in terms of legacy and lineage, that you you do not have a people without legacy and lineage. And you have to have a people a whole made whole as a result of the art that they create. This is why art is so important. Mm-hmm. And art, not only in terms of the written word, but also music in terms of dance, theater, and so forth. When you look at the 10 plays of uh, August Wilson, that's 10 years of serious, serious uh, art, okay? And how he chronicled our lives. Uh, you look at the, uh, the work of Lucille Clifton, okay? And I write about Lucille Clifton at some length primarily because I was so impressed with what she was doing with her work. And I met her when I was at Howard. She was down in Baltimore. She, at that time, my husband was still alive and the kids were babies and so forth. But she took me into her home and fed me and stuff like that. And we became friends. And so, you know, Lucille Clifton and Mari Evans, you look at their work. Um, they're not, you know, <laughs> they're talking about us. <laughs> I'm saying anything you pick about Lucille Clifton, you know she's talking about black people. Same thing with Mari Evans, and, you know, same thing with Sonia and so forth, that that there's no strain because we know that we have been left out of literature. We've been left out of history. We've been left out of politics. We've been left out. So it is our responsibility as conscious men and women to tell our story. And that's what I've done, and that's what I will continue to do. That's what my wife does as one of the major educators in the world, Dr. Carol D. Lee. You look up, you know, I mean, Dr. Carol Lee, she's no, you know, she's no, I, I, you may know my name, but she's no shortstop at all, okay? And uh, she's the one who really built these schools, you know. I, uh, I'm, I'm helping her build the schools and so forth. Yeah. So it's been a long, long journey, and it continues uh, as this evening, you know, with you, uh, cultural daughter, Shani Miller, who... <laughs> You are doing, you know, serious work yourself, but you're following, following that lineage coming out of Spelman and so forth, and your serious mother and father who are obviously culturally, uh, culturally orientated themselves. But as you mentioned earlier, I do, you know, I walk into a home and the first thing I want to know is, is it clean? <laughs> is it clean, right? And then what's on your walls? Are the images of yourself and uh, black visual art? photography, then I go to your bookcase, you got a damn bookcase, all right? So what you're reading and so forth. And then at that time, I'm gonna look in your record collection or your CD collection, see what you listen to. Is it great black music or booty call music? What are you listening to? Then I go to your 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 movies and see what you, at that time, looking at these DVDs, are they, especially DVDs wrapped up in brown paper bags, what are you looking at at night? <laughs> But to really tell what that family is, you go to the children's room. What's on their walls? You know, Mickey Mouse, Darth Vader, and Donald Duck. And you wonder why we're confused. We're confused because we only do what we've been taught to do. Okay, And it's critical that we understand that we have to begin to teach ourselves that which is in our best interest and not in the best interest of the people who actually colonialized the world stole us from a continent, sprinkled us around the rest of the, the, the Western world to build this world for them. People don't realize we act black, act people who have been uh, enslaved by these Europeans, we actually built the capital. 
you know, we actually built DC. All right. So, and what did we get out? So we, we talk about reparations. These people won't hear nothing about reparations. Having stolen everything from the rest of the world, you know, but if you've been raised in lies as the former president was, and the former president, by the time he entered his presidency, how we entered his presidency, he had told over 30,000 lies. 30,000 lies. Can you imagine Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama, telling five lies, you know what I'm saying, and, and getting caught, and not people wishing for his uh, uh, termination, you know? So that's where we are. And this battle continues. I have two final questions for you. One is your 79th birthday is approaching in about 20 days. Right. So as you um, come to this next milestone, what are your reflections, particularly um, you know, as it regards this theme that's been so consistent throughout your, your, your life and work, which is this idea of, of, of belongingness for black people? Right. Like, what does it mean for us to make home here in this country? Well, for the great majority of us, uh, daughter, um, we don't have a choice. The average black person can't move from the south, from the west side to the south side of Chicago. Hmm. So you got 50 million or more black people in this country. And they talk nonsense about going back to Africa when it's difficult to get from Chicago to Arkansas, okay, uh, is unrealistic. We're not going anywhere. So if we're not going anywhere, that means essentially we have to take what we have, work what we need to do to build while we're here. Okay. Now, obviously, I, my children, and you know, your children, you move on, whether it's cultural children or whatever the case may be, we'll eventually be able to travel. You know, I've been on about four continents and traveled across much of the world. But I always come back home, okay? And that my wife and I have built here a home for ourselves, not only in terms of our own home, but a cultural home, you know, in terms of the institutions that we built. And so, yes, this country is ours, too. And we have to work and function and battle for it just like everybody else will. All right. And so now we're in the deep winter of our time. I'm thinking about Gil Scott here, you know, in terms of, of, of his wonderful music that uh, went in America. Okay, that's where we are. And these people don't care anything for us. And the only quote unquote positive thing about that, mainly a lot of white men really understand that now. Well, certainly black women understand that. Because we would not have won Georgia without Stacey Abrams and the other sisters working their hearts out to bring Georgia to the blue side. That's right. And to the human side, you see, of, of this country. So I see that. And I see, so I see in terms of our future is only what we bring to it. Okay. We got to work for, we got to struggle for, we got to fight for. Nobody's given us nothing. They have never given us anything in this country. Never. Okay. And so we got to make sure that historically black colleges and universities get stronger. We got to make sure that the independent black institutions that we're a part of get stronger. And we got to encourage young people to support these institutional structures to support, to support the black churches, the working force, and et cetera, et cetera, to do that. 
So I see, I have to, I'm, I'm what you call an optimistic, optimistic realist. <laughs> I'm optimistic, but I got children, you know, I got yeah. grandchildren, I got cultural children. I'm optimistic. I can't, you know, so therefore I'm going to build, we're going to build to make sure that they come into something. So when my wife and I pass on this earth, we are leaving something for them. They don't have to start all over. They do not have to start all over. Third World Press will be here with the, with the hundreds and hundreds of books that we publish. They'll be here. And that's that's your lineage. You can read Chancellor Williams. You, you, I mean, you can you can read uh, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks. We, we, we have 15 books by Gwendolyn Brooks. You can read her. You can read Hakeem Adabuchi. You, know, you can read you know Michael Simone. You can read Sonia Sanchez. All right, we're getting ready to publish a new book by Sonia. So you can read these great writers and poets. Yes, you got the freedom to self-destruct. I got the freedom to move by liberation. All right. Now, freedom to self-destruct means that you remain ignorant. All right. And what I mean by that, your whole life is developing around misinformation and lies. That becomes a you know a cultural and mental and psychological illness. If you believe this stuff, QAnon and all this mess, these people are mentally ill, all right? So we're trying to move outside of that and, and, and develop health and wellness, all right? So that's that's basically it, daughter, that we have to take it upon ourselves to do that which is just, correct, right, and good with a sense of history, integrity, you know, and understanding of that we are part of each other. Ashe, well said. Um... I want to close with some words you wrote in your most recent book, Taught by Women, Poems as Resistance Language. Um, you said there is no last word for a poet. Poets sign their mm. own signatures on the world. Mm. That's true. And poets and musicians, the musicians have always been ahead. They just couldn't articulate it. You know what I'm saying? They're too busy trying to make a living <laughs> playing their music, but I look at Nikki Mitchell, uh, who was one of my cultural daughters also, but now is the head of the jazz department at the University of Pittsburgh. And she's internationally known as a major composer and flautist. So I see development there. But you've got to believe in yourself. And stop depending upon these people that don't mean you, mean you any good at all, but will smile in your face and then get back and start playing against your development. If we can't depend upon each other, we're in deep, deep trouble. We can't, you know. And Amiri Baraka was a part of this. I, and I was very close to Amiri, and then we fell out for a while, then we came back together. And I've seen, watched his transitions and transitions and so forth, and I, I really love the brother. But others, too who come through the struggle. And so we're going to be here. And I think that our legacy here is that we, here in Chicago, in the Midwest, and in fact, that the Midwest was really almost like the intellectual center of the Black Arts Movement. That's why you have these institutions developing, you know, the Third World Press, Black World Magazine, and so forth, Johnson Publishing Company, Broadside Press, and so forth. And the whole theater movement is real strong. Black theater movement is still real strong. The sister by the name of Jackie Taylor, uh, she built the theater from the ground up, the Black Ensemble Theater here in Chicago. Very strong sister. Mm. So that's basically it, dude. 
I think I lied. One last question. So what advice do you have for the growing movement now? What do we need to be thinking about and considering as we move forward? I think that what's really being pushed often in the schools, the whole STEM education, but you really can't use STEM properly without the humanities and that you have to have the understanding of art and how important art is in the development of the whole human being. And this is why reading is critical. Too much mass media has come in and, and that's cryptic language, okay? You gotta deal with the written word. And the people who influenced me were masters of that word, okay? And still, and some, well, actually all my mentors are deceased now, but um, for the most part, we've got to, we got to make sure that that lineage does not stop with us, okay? And, and we're doing that, and, that's, and you're doing that in your own way too. Thank and you, I appreciate Baba. it. I appreciate you. you. Love you. Thank you so much for your time today. Give my best to your family. Talk to you soon. And thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Nah, I appreciate it too. Okay, dear. Thanks, Baba. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast. And visit lineagepodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch the new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced in partnership with Park Avenue Armory. The lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com and stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday.